Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, this is Trevor from Halifax calling in to say that I support creative control on Patreon because I think long-form arts journalism is a crucial part of music culture and there's simply not enough of it out there today. Vish is a master interviewer, he lands great guests, and he has his finger on the pulse of the ever-changing music landscape both here in Canada and abroad. For all of these reasons and many more, I think you should support creative control on Patreon too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. I'm Visha's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts, and is a panel discussion about the award-winning book, Tomorrow is Too Late, Toronto Hardcore Punk in the 1980s. It was recorded by and at the Toronto Reference Library before a live audience on Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019. What I'd like to do is have uh, each member of the panel uh, introduce themselves uh, one at a time, but I'd also like you to each think about your first encounter with Toronto Hardcore Punk, whatever that was, a song, a show, uh, someone telling you about it, whatever it was, I just want you to talk about how you first engaged with this culture that we're going to be talking about. I, this is a memory jog, so I'm stalling to give you all time. <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking until you have your memories formulated. But yeah, so uh, if you can state your name, your whatever affiliations you'd like to uh, you know, include, and then like I say, first memories of punk, and we can go, let's start with you, sir. Um, my name is Simon Harvey. Uh, I am one of the authors of the Toronto Hardcore book. And uh, my first specific memory I'm going to come up with, um, I actually discussed with someone yesterday, so it comes to mind easily. Uh, my first Toronto Hardcore show, uh, there were no Toronto groups playing, but it was uh, DRI in Detroitson in, in uh, 1986. And I strongly remember a gentleman in camouflage shorts and a shaven head with a T-shirt that said, Oh Christ, it's the Crucifix, uh, repeatedly smashing into my head at velocity from above. And yesterday I was looking at a book of pictures from the past and saw someone wearing the same T-shirt in 1986 and brought it all back. So it was a, it was a pretty vivid uh, introduction to the vitality and noise and chaos of the whole thing. 
Well, based on that experience, I'm glad you have any memory left at all. Well, I primarily make them up. You make them up, yeah. So what was it, uh, beyond the uh, horrible bruising that you took, what was it about the show that spoke to you? I'm just curious. It's funny because I think about that sometimes because the group that I was watching at the time were called Decroitson. They were from Madison, and uh, at that point in their career had already become quite a bit stranger and quirkier and moved uh, moved quite a bit away from the purest hardcore they used to play. And it blew my mind. I mean, the, the noise and, and energy and everything was just, you know, it was a, an attack on the senses. Everything about it was, was overwhelming. But I wonder if jaded 48-year-old me would now look at that and think, ah, oh, they sound like Sonic Youth or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, at the time, it was like n- nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life, maybe a little bit like uh, standing behind a jet engine mixed with a rugby game, but uh, nothing like that all at once, certainly before. Do you have any recollection of what drew you to such an unprecedented event in your life? Like, you you didn't have, you hadn't experienced this before, so I just wonder, what was the circumstance that drew you there? (laughs) I suppose it's hard to pick a exact moment where I learned about that show or anything, but what brought me to having hardcore take a central role in my life would have been probably being around 10 years old in 1980, 1981, and listening to The Jam and The Clash on the radio and not having any idea what kind of music that was and just deciding I liked those songs and a couple years later borrowing a couple Clash records off a kid at school. Um, I remember that specifically in 1985, March break of 1985, and bought London Calling by The Clash and uh, on my 15th birthday, which was September of 1985, I got the first Clash album, and uh, my life uh, just, you know, spiraled into worse and worse music from then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you being here, and thank you for your efforts with this book. How about a hand for Simon, everyone? Thank you. Move on. We move on. And I'm Sean Cherry, and I ran a zine and record label back in the 80s called Still Thinking with some high school friends. And I'm one of the co-authors. And I think my first exposure to punk was probably on TV. And it was likely City TV showing punk. That or the Tom Schneider show. I remember seeing that. City Limits, probably? City Limits. And even the new music started showing punk. And my first concert was I went to go see Triumph at the CNE. And Teenage Head opened. And I had heard Teenage Head on the radio. But seeing them live propelled me into my next concert after that was Devo at nice. Massey Hall. Wow. So, yeah. so Tom Schneider you bring up, who's yeah. very interesting, the booking that was going on on oh, that show. Oh, totally. This is the Tomorrow Show, right? Yeah, and you'd see like E-Pop or the Ramones on there at like one in the morning. Right. So, so who, that, what an 11-year-old was doing at one up at one in the morning is another story. Are your parents here by they're, chance? They're, they're should not, we, so guardians? <laughs> Maybe we should be talking to them. Uh, who did you see on the Tom Schneider Show that struck your fancy? Probably, like, probably Iggy Pop, seeing him at his peak in like 79 or 80 going on what Iggy would do. Yes, yeah. shirtless. Shirtless and... Wild performance. No peanut butter. No, no peanut, peanut butter, butter at that time. <laughs> and then engaging... What did you make of Tom Schneider's engagement with this subculture? Because he, he's he, presented he was, himself as this very... I mean... He was, he was very rigid and, and antagonizing. In way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, kind of... But cur- I think curious about it. Uh, he was. Less he was. judgmental, but like he just was like, where are you coming from? I need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. it was TV. TV and then... Knowing that this stuff was here in the city. But how did you know it was here? I think mostly from city TV. Just from TV? Yeah. Can you imagine? Like, I knew about most things from much music growing up in the 90s and the 80s and the 90s. And so that's how I knew about everything. And now that doesn't exist. No, no. 
Is there a substitute, do you think, currently? I guess the internet generally? The internet and YouTube and yeah. maybe Exclaim. Exclaim Magazine, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Okay, all yeah. right. So that's, that's your memory. That's my memory. No one's going to question this. Is anyone <laughs> unsure if Sean is correct here? No, this is right? Okay, Sean, yeah. thank you for being thank here you. again. Thank you. Then we'll move down. <laughs> you, sir. Hey, one of our panelists has showed up. It's awesome. Hey, it's Doug. Hey, Doug. How's it going, Doug? It's a trend. We're showing up late. I, I'm sorry again. You're here. Uh, okay, so I'm Derek Emerson, and uh, again, one of the co-authors of this book. Um, I came at things a little bit differently, I guess, from more of the hard rock, heavy metal side of things. So as a kid in the late 70s growing up, and then my first concert is Kiss, and you're seeing, you know, whoever, Rush and Queen and all these bands of the day. Um, I guess by the early 80s, I kind of got jaded with just, you know, the, the big stadium kind of stuff. And I started to look for similar kind of music, but a little bit more underground, aggressive. So bands like, so I started tape trading. Um, so that was a big thing in my life was um, sending out tapes to people in California and England and Europe, wherever, and finding just, out just, what... Just, just to follow up on that, just for yeah. one second, are you just sending these to random people? How do no. you find so people the way that it worked, stuff to? Well, the way it worked back then was there were fanzines and there were magazines like Metal Forces, uh, Kerrang, things like that on the right. metal side. And they had, uh, in the back of the magazine, they'd have these like classified ads and it'd be like the, the pen pal ads, right? And so... A lot of the people that actually became influential in the metal scene later on, that's how they started meeting and networking with all these people. And bands that are the biggest bands in the world, like Metallica, their demo got circulated around, and that's how the underground, that's how they built their base, right? right? And, and it was, you know, not just people, but people like me that were just saying, this band's interesting, and then sending it to someone somewhere else, and they'd do another copy, and the copy would get around. Um, so, but bringing it more to a local focus, so I was tape trading with all these people and I was listening to primarily metal, but then I started, you know, you're into Motorhead or whatever, it's not really that big of a leap into Discharge, right? And then you're just kind of like, okay, this is now, now I'm listening to punk and it's not that different, it's still aggressive. I didn't actually even really see the lines between those things as, as something like, I can't listen to that or I have to listen to this, like it just seemed natural to, to you know, listen to both types of music. But you bring the lines up because there was that delineation. There, there were lines, but it didn't phase me. And, it, and the crossover wasn't a thing yet, but it, I just didn't really see them as a, as a barrier, you know, a barrier to entry. But more specifically about the local bands, so there was a record store called Record Peddler, which I'm sure most people in the room know and, and were half, you know, have spent half their lives there digging through the bins. But, but for people who may be listening yep. to this from around the world, because it's, it is being recorded for a podcast, yep. can you explain the significance? What, what is Record Peddler? What was the significance of Record Peddler? Uh, okay, so Record Peddler was an independent store started in the late 70s um, by two partners. Um, and uh, their goal was to basically service a niche here that, um, that the, the sort of a little bit more mainstream stores like a Sam's or... Records on Wheels. Records on Wheels wasn't really mainstream, but they, they didn't go deep into um, extreme forms of music. Whereas Record Peddler, that was their mandate was to find these really obscure records. They had people like that would that they had contacts that would go over to England, bring them back suitcases full of you know magazines and records and things that you just weren't getting here. Mm-hmm. And then they and then Ben thought you know Ben Hoffman was uh, one of the partners. He thought you know why don't we start to distribute this stuff here to even some of the other stores like Records on Wheels would buy things from them and and uh, they started doing uh, you know distribution to small stores across Canada and they grew this sort of distribution network. But 
it was really grassroots. It was literally a record peddler. It was they, they were peddling records to the other. And stores. the name is interesting. In the book, there's um, a little anecdote that uh, how they came up with the name because. Prior to starting Record Peddler, uh, Ben Hoffman was a drug dealer. He was peddling drugs. Makes sense. And uh, so he'd been busted for that and whatever. And then he thought, you know what, I'm going to go legit and I'm going to start to peddle records now. So it became the Record Peddler. I see. So the idea was, um, you guys probably remember the logo that, uh, that they used was a guy on his bike. That was actually a mistake. Um, when Ben was explaining the concept to the artist, he said, I want it to be a record peddler. I'm peddling records instead of drugs. So he wanted it to be a guy with opening his trench coat. And instead of having drugs or, you know, whatever, uh, wristwatches or whatever, he would have records inside his trench coat. That's what it was supposed to be. But the artist misunderstood in that, and then it just kind of went with it. But anyway... Um, Finding out about Record Peddler was the life-changing moment for me. Um, Just finding out about the store. Finding out about the store because it led to so many other things. And specifically, your question about, you know, the local bands. That's where we found, like, demos by Direct Action and Chronic Submission and, uh, you know, Sudden Impact and all these bands. And then you start realizing this stuff's happening right here. Like, I got to start to dig into this a bit more, right? So I kind of was still listening to the old-school metal stuff and tape trading and doing all that. But I was also getting those tapes from Record Peddler and sending those out into the world and trying to say, hey, you know what? Because a lot of people elsewhere just thought that we lived in igloos. Like, re- sure, the reality, like, for real, they were just like, I can't believe you have power. You know what I mean? Right. I get these kind of records or these, these um, notes from people when you'd send them out these recordings. And so, anyway. It's because of SCTV. It's just, because of Bob and Doug. They, yeah. They, well, I'm going to try and cut the story short, but basically, <laughs> I sent out those tapes and I always felt like... There could have been more. There could have been, there should have been more recognition of the bands that some of the people in this room were in. And they never got it back then. And so that was why Sean and I first started talking about doing this book. We're just like, this is fucked up. Like, there needs to be a recognition of this stuff out there. And so it was important to us to have a record come with it as well so that the music could actually get into the world, even though, yeah, you can find it on the internet now. We wanted them to, a lot of these bands didn't have a proper you know, um, vinyl release back then. And we were just like, this is important to us. So we wanted it to come with a record, the original pressing. And we wanted all these bands to finally get their due. I, I want to follow up with you. It might come up later in conversation, but that delineation we, you were talking about in terms of being a metal fan versus uh, you know, getting into hardcore and punk, I just wonder about the social delineation as well. Because it sounds like you were interacting with people around the world about this culture you cared about. And I want to figure out how that, you being a metal guy, getting into hardcore, how that manifested itself in your immediate surroundings and region. But again, do you think this is going to come up as we go? Um, probably will, yeah. About crossover and how the scenes kind of melded together. Yeah, but I just wonder. I guess just to touch on it. Yeah. It, it was, um, at first, we had long hair and we were going to punk shows. People gave us the look. Yeah. But I think that in Toronto, at least, there wasn't that sort of pushback of, like, you don't belong here. It's like, okay, well, you must be here for a reason, and as long as you're not causing trouble, like, we'll see how this goes. It was that kind of a... Right. We had we were, you know, getting tested of whether or not, you know, how true we were into this music, you know? Right. And, um, yeah, and uh, there was no violence or no anything. Judgmental no judgmental No judgment, okay. no judgments, no violence, no anything, none okay. of that stuff that we really perceived. And it was pretty quick. It was only a matter of a few handful of shows, and people thought, you know what, we can we can live with this. To some people, that whole crossover thing becomes a little bit muddier as the 80s go on and yeah. the bands and the, the music just kind of became more generic and whatnot, but that's, that's a different okay. matter. Well, Derek, I appreciate the introduction and the context. How about a hand for Derek, everyone?
Fran? Uh, so my name is Fran Grasso, and I'm one of the book team, just uh, helped with uh, the interviews and transcribing. Um, my uh, intro to punk, when I was uh, a kid, I just kind of, um, yeah, new immigrant, uh, came here when I was five, um, from Italy, um, never really quite fit in, so I was always looking for something, um, and when I found uh, the Sex Pistols on the radio, I used to listen to CFMY when it was, you know, uh, more interesting. Um, there, there was uh, Sex Pistols and a lot of British uh, punk, uh, so that was kind of my intro, and then uh, when The Exploited were playing a show here, uh, that was my first show was um, You the saw The Exploited? <laughs> wow. Mm, yeah. Where, where was that? I think it was the bridge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ilda Coast. July fourth, July fourth, eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. open yeah. for. Well four done. <laughs> for you? Simon just gave the date. What did you say? The, what did you say the day was? I only know it was July fourth because it's American Independence Day, and um, this is far from one of my favorite groups, but they are well known for a song that is less than entirely approving of the United States. So, yeah, so. <laughs> Worth Fun. noting that. Were, were you at the show as well? I was. Yes. Okay. Did you Did you know Fran? I don't think we met. Not maybe uh, yeah. I, we probably did within months. Yeah. Each other. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah. So that was one of my. So CFNY. Yeah. This is interesting. Now, yeah. two people have brought up media outlets that sort of still exist that mm-hmm. used to be good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now aren't. Yeah. I mean, did you when growing up in well, you were only five when you came over. You were saying yeah. so you weren't really in touch with like punk scenes in Italy per se no. or no. underground music. Okay, so no. you came here. But this music spoke to you. What were you into before that, though? I came from more of the new wave stuff. I had subscriptions to, like, some British uh, magazines. Um, so, so there was a lot of British new wave and punk that I was looking at. But then after I um, started going to shows, I kind of got off of the, the British stuff and more onto the uh, American local uh, punk and hardcore bands. Why'd you get off the British stuff, if I might ask? It was a bit too um, maybe political in a, a way I couldn't relate at that time. Um, Are you include- and also who- the hair and oh. the you know, like it was just all like just too too much for me. Fashiony. Yeah. So you got off. Are you including the pistols in that? Yes. The Pistols Clash, <laughs> Dan, like you, or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, you're just like, no. I, I just like the, like, Black Flag and all the American hardcore, and okay. of course MSI, right. and local bands. You you just motioned with your hand when you said MSI, what were you referencing? Uh, Derek. Derek, you yeah. were? So I played guitar in a band called MSI, right? and we actually opened for that Exploited show. Oh, weird. As well. Oh, okay, cool. That was, a, now, did, that was a joke because they were straight Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, we got, put on the, we got put on the bill by Brian Taylor. Right. Um, he got us somehow on that bill because we were a straight-edge band, which means no drinking, no drugs, that I'm kind of thing. I'm straight-edge still. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just in case the audience doesn't know, though, that's you know, yeah. a straight-edge band. So he got us put on that bill because he thought that we would probably get injured and get stuff thrown at us and whatever. Seems like a good Brian Taylor It was a bit prank. of a joke. <laughs> yeah. And then as, a, as a, uh, you know, a return joke, we said, yeah, we'll take that show. <laughs> <laughs> and we did it, and it turned out that Wadi was actually really super nice to us. And, oh, nice. Yeah. He, uh, one of our friends actually um, got killed by uh, a drunk driver a couple days before, and that earlier that day was his funeral. And so we came directly from, like, basically a lot of the hardcore scene was at that funeral, and we came directly from there to the show. So there was a lot of rage and kind of angst and, you know, a lot of pissed off kids because of this situation that had just happened. And... Um, we had sort of told Wadi the story before the show, 
And, uh, you know, he was very sympathetic and, you know, oh, I'm really so sad to hear about your friend and Scott. Scott Williams is his name. He was a guitarist for another band called Death of Gods. And um, anyways, so we play our set. And then, you know, there were a couple other bands after us. Uh, Dr. No played and maybe that was it actually. But anyways, another band played and then The Exploited comes on. And um, halfway through the set, Wadi dedicated a song to our friend Scott and oh, wow. recounted the story to the crowd. And we're just like, wow, that guy actually, like, he didn't have to give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, he, he was high as a kite. I'll say that. He was, he was coked up and he had women all over him and, like, just a lot of distractions. But just the fact that he went on stage and recounted that story and gave a shit about our situation really meant something. Well, you know? it's, it's a sweet story. I've never yeah. heard distractions used in such a way, but that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a nice story. Well, Fran, I, we segued from Fran... Did you two meet at the show, friend? Do you remember? No, but no. you do you remember no, seeing MSI? Did you remember seeing MSI? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fran, thank you so much. And how about a hand for Fran? Uh, my name is Steve Perry, and I'm a co-host for a radio show here in Toronto called Equalize and Distort. And um, I did a number of other things. I did a fanzine and did a tape label and a record label called Ragamuffin Soldier sang in a band called One Blood, sang in a band called Countdown to Oblivion, did a bunch of different things. But we also, uh, we first started doing a radio show at York um, called Fast and Bulbous on the Spot, which I want to thank Mike Kanzi for being my co-partner in that. Um, he was in Sons of Ishmael, and uh, I wasn't brave enough to try and do one myself, so uh, Mike was a good partner in crime for that. Um, but my first, so... I want to say, I want to sort of approach this a little differently because I do think that there's a media angle to it. Um, the first time I was exposed to punk rock was at Estonian summer camp. and um, As was, you would be. It, yeah, it sounds like an unusual starting point. Yeah. Um, the kid who uh, had, so we were in barracks, and the kid who had, uh, had brought his stereo equipment to, so that we could all listen to records and stuff on was into punk rock. And so I was being, I re, like at the time, hated it. Um, but was being slowly exposed to it and learning about it and then st starting to develop a taste for it. And, um, you know, in later in life, I was asking him about where, what his sources were for finding music, as lots of us nerds do. And uh, he was telling me, because he lived on a farm, so it was kind of unusual for a punk rocker to be coming out of sort of a farming agricultural community. And he was saying, yeah, I was listening to C CFRU, so the Guelph station. Well, weird. And he was listening to, I think, the Kitchener station, which maybe was CKMS, or I'm not uh, sure. Whether there was CKWR, was, was there? Anyway, there's a few. Maybe yeah. it was that one. Yeah, anyway. And, uh, you know, you could listen to these radio stations, and uh, you, could get, you could actually get a phone call in, and they would probably actually play a request. And then they would shout you out over the radio, so it would be a kick to get hear your name on the radio. Anyway, that's sort of how he started learning about all these uh, punk rock bands, and uh, he had a great collection, and that's kind of how I went. Uh, so my first show was uh, the Boomtown Rats at the Seneca College, but I don't know if that's sort of hardcore enough for this book. Um, however, They, they were pretty angry at Mondays. <laughs> yeah, they hated Mondays. Yeah. And B.B. Uh, Gabor opened up. Anyway... My, Sorry, where was that show? That was at Seneca College, and it was actually pretty close to where I lived, grew up in North York. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was easy for me to get to. Uh, I could still not tell my parents where I was going and still get out to the show. I think I was 13 or 14 at the time. And, uh, you know, seeing... So I was terrified going to that show. And, you know, seeing kids, like, with uh, safety... Like, there's a kid with a safety pin through, uh, I think, through her cheek, and I'm like, man, I got to do that? Like, hmm... <laughs> 
it's going to take some convincing, right? right? Anyway, I think the there was a few hardcore shows that I started going to. I went to Larry's and uh, uh, I went to the that one of the Black Flag shows at the Party Center. But the first show that really kind of clinched it for me was DOA at the Upper Lip, um, and that it's kind of like what Simon was talking about, where there's sort of a familiarity with like a like that. Um, War on 45 single, the 12-inch that um, was available in a lot of places, uh, was one of the first records I bought. And, you know, just be able to sing along to these songs, seeing it being played live. And uh, there was just sort of, it was just a, f- a feeling of belonging. So that was what clinched it for me. And then they did this uh, crazy, uh, I-, I keep mentioning this story to a lot of people. I don't think people ever confirm that the story happened but i totally remember them doing a cover of singing in the rain as an encore and people just started gobbing in the air and it started raining and i thought i thought gross but funny you know <laughs> was, was it a was it a it was hilarious was I it a like, faithful cover of the song like were they doing yeah, it, it was pretty i mean it was like a sped up version it's like a right. punk version like how you'd hope uh, somebody in a punk scene would do okay but uh, like just the sense of humor to it, it was just uh, and how it just sort of came spontaneously to people. This idea, I thought, just there's so much creativity in this scene, right? There's so much to this scene. So anyway, yeah. I appreciate that. that well, and did you did you plug your show? You did sort of mention your radio um, show. You're still doing one. I still am. Yes, uh, equalizing the start, which uh, Simon and I started at CIUT back in 1999, um, and uh, yeah, I sort of moved from. Uh, CHRY up at York uh, down there and Simon was being sort of uh, approached by the program director at the time and I'm like Simon let's team up and do a show and Hmm. uh, he came up with the name and uh, we sort of came up with the idea of the show and yeah we've been it's been going ever since and what what is your role in this book Uh, I did a bunch of interviews um, and I think maybe I could be credited for like we had a blog that we were posting up flyers and different events for and uh sean and derek had seen it and said you know when they were coming up i think they'll tell the story about how they I, the idea for the book yeah, came up sure but you know i we were all of the same mind that uh this was a scene that hadn't been covered and definitely deserved its due and um and it was long overdue well i appreciate the introduction how about a hand for steve as well please everyone thank you Oh, yes, yeah, we'll, sorry. We'll, we'll introduce Doug as well. We have another panelist. Sorry, I forgot about that. Do you want to, is there room? Can we, can he join us? Yeah, the uh, club that we were, t- the show that we were talking about earlier, The Exploited, oh. yeah. uh, that took place at a club called Ildico's. Yeah. And um, it went under three different names, actually, over a period of a, two and a half years. But it was a very important club in Toronto's punk history. It started out as the Starwood, then it became the Bridge, and then it became Ildico's. But it was all in the same building. Hmm. Um, Doug is the gentleman that ran that club. Welcome, Doug. Thank you for being here. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, my name is Douglas Galbraith. In, in 1984, we opened a, a club on uh, Bloor Street, 507 Bloor, with my Hungarian partner. And uh, we started with different kind of music altogether. It was Latin and ballroom, dance music and all that. <laughs> that didn't work, so we changed the whole format, we changed the color of the uh, facilities all into black, and uh, we had hardcore bands featured there, and we had quite a few. We had a bunch of fucking goose and uh, sudden impact 
and uh, suicidal tendencies. And, uh, you know, we, these bands were awesome because what they had, they all had followers. So we'd advertise in the now newspaper and to say what bands are playing and what times, you know, and they would show up. And some bands would bring like 50 people. We had four bands like jam sessions, uh, about three to four nights a week. So, you know, it was, <laughs> they drank a lot of beer and there was a lot of music and, uh, we need diversity. That's the whole thing. And this is what's really working now with the world in, in general and everything. Diversity. And uh, the bands uh, were very, uh, well, uh, awesome. They were just awesome. Yeah. Doug, yeah. can you take us back to that moment in time and what compelled you to make a place for these bands? Like you mentioned, you know, altering this space, but what yeah. was it th- about the music that... You, well, mentioned, uh, you mentioned they had a following, and, you know, that was that's great. But what was it? What was it about the music that spoke to you? Well, uh, we had... Uh, the, the ballroom dancing wasn't working well. They don't drink. <laughs> so... And, uh, the the yeah. ballroom dancing... They just pay the admission, and the music's great, but uh, and the atmosphere was nice, but... You know, you can't make money just with no bar working. So uh, you can't we, be tipsy ballroom dancing. You yeah. have to you have to be sure-footed. <laughs> so uh, a couple of individuals, uh, Enzo and uh, the other chap, I forget his name now. Some pilot. Yeah, uh, uh, introduced uh, to Ildico and uh, said, "Why don't you?" You know, they said to her, "Why don't we try uh, some different kind of entertainment, uh, hardcore?" And I. She said, well, she said, okay, let's try it, you know. And that's when we painted everything black and, you know, did everything. And uh, they started coming, the bands, I mean. And uh, they had followers, and this is it. We did more with the uh, uh, hardcore bands, with uh, customers coming in, than we did with the, the Latin ballroom. So, yeah. so it was sort of a business decision, really. Like yes. You were trying to keep the, the venue going. We were trying to keep it going. Yeah. Right. The rent was quite high at that time. It was 5000 a month back in 84, and that was a, a, a kind of a tidy sum. Right. And she was a high school teacher in the daytime, and I was selling shoes. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, uh, for the ballroom I, dancers? No, probably not for them. No. That's, it's a, that's an amazing uh, aspect of punk is that it ends up in churches, church basements, people just trying to yeah. make the rent. Right, making a space for them. So you were doing the same thing. Yeah. Did yeah. you grow to Did you grow to like the music? Uh, at first, I didn't, but then I got to like it. It's <laughs> funny, eh? Yeah. No, because uh, people were having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, when you when you have a jam session with all different bands, you have so much variety. <laughs> right. So you, you you get the flavor, you know. It's really great. Yeah. And uh, we had a big space, 5,000 square feet. So you can imagine it was a big floor. And a stage was elevated at the, t- at the one end. And uh, the bands could perform up on the stage. And uh, it was just great. And so what happened from that, uh, they looked at me up a few years ago, a year or two ago, because they said, were you the people that yeah. operated the bridge? And I said, yeah. And then we got in contact. But what happens is... Uh, they they wanted me to MC the bands because they remembered me that they were so happy to be playing there, you know. And uh, well, just just to go back a little bit um, during the original um, days of the bridge, Doug would get on stage and introduce these bands. 
So, and he would do it in this sort of like Vegas showmanship sort of style, right? He'd be dressed up and, you know, there'd be all these punk kids with their ripped up clothes and Doug would be there in a, in a you know, velour leisure suit or something. You know, he'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, the bunch of fucking goofs. And we're like, it's like we were one of the only scenes on the planet probably that had their own punk MC. That's amazing. And, and he'd play bongos too. And he played bongos. Yeah. Back to the soundboard. The bands are playing. He's playing bongos. We're just like, this guy's got, got would, something going on. You would play bongos while the bands were playing hardcore music? The odd time, but not, not all the time. <laughs> but, 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 one of the first shows there was Johnny Thunder's play oh, when wow. it was still the yeah. Starwood and Sean Pilot put it on and the, the fellow who owned Lee's Palace it had been a club at one point in the late 70s early 80s and then he saw the lineup out the door for this Johnny Thunder's gig and it inspired him to open up Lee's Palace again Wow. Okay. So That's right. that is okay. And and just speaking from the point of view of a band from that period of time if Doug hadn't have done what he and his partner Ildico had done. I don't know that our band would have existed or any of the bands at that point because punk wouldn't have had a home in the city. And I don't think Doug probably at the time, like he just he wanted to sell beer. He wanted to, you know, it was a livelihood. But I don't think he understood until we got in touch with him about the book, like how many people's lives he impacted. And, exactly. And it was amazing to be able to <laughs> to reach out to him after all these years, after thirty years, and say, you know what, you, what you did was very important, and this book is a document about a lot of that period and it's because he did what he did at the time are you feeling more appreciated now doug oh yeah for sure <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> doug i mean you know more appreciated underground culture is uh populated by a lot of unsung heroes who do that the kind of work you did so i just want to say on behalf of all punks and all people thank you for your efforts in this city and for opening it up and being open-minded because uh it's amazing that you did this Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to say that we had a record release show um, for this book. Yes. And uh, we invited Doug, and he emceed the, the bands, and he introduced them, and it was amazing. Do you still fit in the velour suit? I know that sounds seedy. You were just dressed <laughs> like that? Okay. Casual? Okay. Well, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So we uh, have talked about, thank you everyone for introducing yourself, first of all, but we've talked about a few people, um, and this book is a cavalcade of names <laughs> and uh, lots of different bands, but you have all kind of talked about the material conditions of Toronto in some way, and I think that's worth discussing um, to take us back to what was available um, to bands, to fans. Um, we, you know, we've talked about Doug here and the fact that he opened up this space for bands. Can someone, maybe Derek, maybe Sean, maybe anyone, talk a little bit about what it was actually like in Toronto at, at the time that this scene was blossoming and coming up uh, politically, socially, culturally? Is, it, is that worth talking about, do you think, and how it impacted Toronto hardcore? Sean? I'm thinking I, had, I interviewed Daniel Richler from The New Music and he was a guy who came here from being in the UK, and he said, all I remember was Toronto being super bleak, and that you basically would get on the streetcar and go to places, so you were going to a friend's house, or you're going to a venue, and I thought, like, you know, I lived here my whole life, I lived in the city, and it was a bleak, gray, depressing place with not a lot of outlets, and it was really, going to these shows or going to the record peddler was our community. 
It's bad when someone from England says we're bleak. Yes. Yeah, it struck um, me because he had this outside view, and I went, oh, my God, he's right. This place was horrible. <laughs> so do you, I'm trying, what just, years are we talking about? But in, I, want, I want to say something. Yeah. I think a oh. lot of us came from suburbs. Yeah. And that was sort of the model of pre-planned kind of building and structures, and there was no fun in that, um, even though they were trying to build fun into it. And um, I, I think a lot of us were looking for adventure in some ways. Or, yeah. like, for a place to belong. So it was kind of, there was also this boredom in our lives that, uh, and looking for a place to belong. And, uh, I mean, because I came from North York, and there was nothing going on there. And downtown, there was lots of amazing, interesting people and things to do. And uh, I think there was this absence of culture in the surrounding area that sort of pushed me into hardcore. Yeah, I think that also as a kid, and like Steve said, you're looking for some adventure there's a sense of danger, right? You're going to a club and you're 14, 15 years old and, uh, you know, you've got these uh, veterans like Doug, you know, that have been working clubs and they're, you know, like these older guys that are, you know, and even the people in your own scene that are four or five years older, it's, it's like a lifetime difference when you're that age. And there's an element of fear and danger and not knowing what's going to happen, but then you get into the, the atmosphere and you just go like, yeah, everybody's fine here. It's, you know, it was a pretty relatively safe uh, environment. But at first, that was one of the things that, that sort of attracted me was just this, like, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. Going to places like Larry's Hideaway or uh, the DMZ when it was on Spadina, and it's run by the Goofs, right? And the Goofs were kind of viewed as a, a gang, I guess, at that point or whatever. And uh, they're a few years older than you, and you're like, hmm, this is a little bit scary, and what, what's going to happen here? There's an element of danger and surprise and all of that, and it kind of you know, got your adrenaline going as a kid. Where, where you could, you you could get it for free at the, one of their shows if you brought a TV down for their song pre-programmed. You could uh, bring it, get it for a dollar, a, dollar for, a dollar off for yeah, bringing a graffiti tool at the DMZ. It was a punk run club. There were so many amazing things going on within that scene that how could you not want to... Like, it was just so different from what you were growing up in. Well, you and, grew up in the suburbs, though, yeah. right? You were saying... Well, all of us... I'm looking at everybody. Panel, all well, it of depends us what you mean by suburbs. I mean, you know... I, you were in North York. You were in Scarborough. I was in Scarborough. I mean, we were in the city. You'd hop on the bus. It wasn't like we lived in... Guelph? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it wasn't, Who it wasn't was like there? we lived in Oakville or, or I Whitby. sensed a burn coming, so but, uh, I <laughs> headed it off but it the was a, you, you, As I'm sure you're well aware, I mean, even 30 years ago, we didn't have Sunday shopping. There were parts right. of the city that were still dry. Right. You know, I mean, it was certainly a much more monochromatic see your faces if you were riding the bus or whatever. Um, lots of things have changed pretty dramatically and um, maybe not drastically overnight, but over the course of several decades. And uh, at the time, there was, I'm, I think there was always an undercurrent of, of violence. There was always gangs and stuff. When you read about, you know, brawls between Nazis and anti-fascists that baseball diamonds in Toronto in the 30s. I mean, there's always been violence and danger and crime if you go to search it out. But I think that uh, the day-to-day life, if you mind your own business and stay in your, your, you know, your residential neighborhood, um, was, was maybe not as exciting back then. Well, and huh. it, it, punk definitely made it easier to seek excitement out. Well, it's interesting that I asked about kind of material conditions of the city at the time, and violence has come up. So violence was a factor in everyday life in Toronto. Is that what you're saying? 
I, I mean, it, it is still to this day, but was it feeling We didn't have, like, and... these summer of the gun things. Right, I mean, course. I don't remember. I mean, yeah. I remember people being murdered and so on, the things that would make the news, but I also wonder if uh, things that made the news now wouldn't even make the news. Hmm. Well, there's a... In the book, you, there's a... And it's well documented on some level that when the Ramones first came to town, everybody started a band after that. So I guess what I'm getting at, and I know it's impossible to pinpoint exactly where this particular sound came from, but I wonder if it's drawing from some mood in the city, I guess is what I'm getting at, when, you get, when you're talking about Toronto hardcore. Um, and by the way, it could, we've discovered it could equally be called greater Toronto hardcore, couldn't it? I mean, it's, it's a lot of suburban kids. I myself would come into Toronto for shows. But, but uh, there were certainly some downtown. I mean, our entry point is like, a, I think, a generation back from the first... Uh, our second wave of the hardcore scene. But I'm thinking of bands like the Young Lions who um, were looking at, in some of the interviews that we did, they were looking at, so they felt that they were sort of at, at a perfect intersection between America and the UK. And so Canada had a bit of both. They were taking like some of the melodic sounds of the UK punk scene and they were taking some of the speed that was associated with the American hardcore scene and they were marrying the two together, right? And so that's kind of how you start seeing the scenes start sounding the way it sounds, right? They start playing faster, they start playing more political. Everything was more. It was just a little bit uh, of everything more. Everything was amping up. So, um, and the time wasn't great. Like, I mean, we did talk about the bleakness of it and I think there was... Uh, you know, there was a neocon revolution going on within politics at the time, like Reagan, Thatcher, Brian Mulroney. We had Mulroney, so you had that. You, and whether it was the residue or whether we were right in it, uh, we were still dealing with the policies that were being put in place by those people. So you had reason to be pissed off. Um, and uh, you were looking for something. I just think it was, there was a lot of things going on at the time. I, I also think that uh, some of these places, like some of these clubs require... Um, a bunch of entrepreneurship where you get uh, people who are willing to take risks, uh, like Doug was talking about. We, they ha- he had to take a risk, right? Things weren't working out. Um, some of these places were old man bars, like people talk about the Turning Point being an old man bar before that, and then sort of taking a risk with some of these punk bands because they could sell more beer. I mean, it was it became just the learning thing. point, right? That's what people started that, to yeah, call that's it. affectionately, right? Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of places like that, like that were taking place in. Like I remember, the second DMZ was Blondie's. It was cut like a little bit further out and a little bit north of Bloor, which you know, God forbid, it's north of Bloor, right? It wasn't in <laughs> it was the in central like business district. <laughs> but the, the reason why it was there was probably because it was cheaper, right? And sure. uh, you could make something of it. So some of these things required uh, an entrepreneur. Like there's a lot of factors that go into making some of the recipe for how this scene started evolving. And that's sort of the city part of it. Like you're sort of asking a specific question about the city part of it. I'm thinking part of it does require lower rents uh, and an, as a person who's willing to take a risk and some of those things. Yeah, I think I, I'm actually equally interested in the lyrical content. You, by the way, uh, started to characterize the sound of Toronto Hardcore, which I, I think I appreciate. Maybe people who are listening to this and people here tonight might appreciate this. Um, I mentioned the Young Lions because every time I started, like when I was doing, I was, I think at that point I was doing a radio show and we were learning about the scene before us, everyone pointed to the Young Lions. Right. And I would say that, you know, Youth, Youth, Youth were one of my favorite hardcore bands uh, of the whole lot. Like listening to their music, going back to it, I still 
just get super excited when I hear them play. Has anyone seen the SCTV skit, The Queen Haters? That's that's the Young Lions. They wrote those songs, yeah, Yeah. and played them. Well, it's literally the Young Lions is what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the SCTV people. I I don't think there's a Toronto hardcore sound, though. There were lots of different... That's what I want to get at. There there wasn't. There wasn't really, okay. But that that was what was great about Toronto, right? Well, I mean, there's just there's just lots of different kinds of punk bands. Yeah, but um, I think too there's a we talk about the violence and so on, and there's a sort of received wisdom with pretty much every punk history in the world, where everyone says how first wave punk was all art school and it was uh, you know a lot of queer content and women involved and it was all you know interesting and culturally vital, and then hardcore comes along and it's the sort of you know, blur of noise. Yeah. It wasn't like that. I know, yeah. And what's more, in Toronto, you look at the first generation of 70s punk, it was really violent. Not everybody. I wasn't there. But you talk to people who were, and you keep hearing about the Blake Street Boys and all this kind of, you know, guys like Nazi Dog. I mean, no one was calling yeah. themselves Nazi Dog there was the, a real, like 10 years later. That's you know? right. There was a real marriage of fascism and well, I don't, I don't think it was real fascism. No, but it was like a weird... But this is, this is something I think that goes over, gets shock, left out of this a lot. Shock well, well, beyond yeah. that, though, there's two different kinds of rebellion we're talking about here. Yeah. We talk about these conservative governments coming in around, which I certainly wouldn't call neoconservative, but conservative governments coming in around 1980. And so in the 70s, you've got punk rock, and the rebellion isn't, again, I mean... You know, the 50s to the 70s are economically and culturally quite vital and healthy in the Western world. Yes. And, uh, I mean, we have the OPEC crises and so on, but yeah. generally, life gets better. Right. Society improves. And so punk is a cultural rebellion. It's a rebellion against hippies and the Grateful Dead and your parents smoking pot and, you know, people having long hair. So things like um, Nazi dog, I mean, it's moronic. I don't approve of it. But the context is offending people who were supposed to be the rock and roll rebels a generation earlier. Right. You know, there's no real great political content to much 70s punk at all. What about Toronto Hardcore, though? Because I... I that's, and, well, that's this, what is what, so yeah. this is what I'm going to say. So yeah. then in 1980, the music becomes a lot heavier, music becomes a lot more violent, and the lyrics become a lot more serious. And there's a lot less um, of the... I mean, you still have dumb knee-jerk, pseudo-reactionary shock value stuff, but you also have, you know, your dead Kennedys and your MDCs and so on, and I think that um, Toronto certainly reflects that. Um, Once again, I wasn't there in the early 80s, so I'm a little reticent to be telling people what the early 80s were like, but um, by the late 80s, or the mid-80s, it's much more ideological. It's much more specifically political. People aren't worried so much about offending hippies there's, I mean, there's people in this room that were in groups like Sons of Ishmael that were writing songs about the global arms trade or, you know, yeah. um, austerity programs and, you know, the IMF in, in forcing developing countries to cut social programs. These are the sort of things that bands are singing about. You don't get that in the 70s. No. And this flies completely counter to the usual sort of part-timer narrative about this stuff. So I want to go to Fran for a moment, just because, Fran, you were saying that you kind of jettisoned some of the British punk because of the politics and that you couldn't really relate to what they were talking about. Does the Toronto, like the stuff that Simon was just talking about, could you relate to that more? Were you aware of that? I could, just because I guess it was more relevant to me, like singing about Thatcher and things that weren't, you know, in my day-to-day life um, I couldn't relate to. Right. But for sure, like, you know, the politics here and just, you know, like whatever was happening at that time 
that that's a different thing. And I think that's why it was so, um, like, the British punk scene was uh, what got me into the music, but then the lyrics and, and stuff I, I just couldn't relate to after a while, and I, I could relate more to the American and Canadian I stuff. see. So it wasn't that they were being political. It was just like you couldn't the relate type, to their yeah, politics, but, yeah, right? Exactly. It wasn't your politics. So yeah. when Toronto hardcore bands started to sing about regional politics, national politics, that resonated with you? Yeah. Okay, sure. okay. Sean, are there particular woodshed moments for Toronto hardcore? I mentioned the Ramones coming to town. Um, and that changing the culture on yeah. some level in terms of punk. What about hardcore? We we have a couple sections in there where we have sort of key gigs that happen, yeah. and most of them were big bands coming here. So it wasn't. We still looked at the outside bands as the important things happening. And the first one that we talk about as the starting point really was a an event that happened at City Hall that was this anti nuke event and. DOA's playing, and the rest of the bands are all first wave, 70s right. Toronto punk bands, and, you know, swastikas show up, and all the stupid stuff from the 70s punk is there, and... Pro-nuke chants, and... Pro-nuke yeah. chants, and DOA's the only thing, and DOA had been in the city previously, they tried to make a go of it in the late 70s here, and then they come back, and they're sort of the ones that breathe life, because I think Toronto was probably late to starting hardcore bands, I think we were listening to hardcore bands... And the big one was there was two Dead Kennedy shows at the concert hall about eight months apart. And the first one, it's first wave bands opening. So Les Changers, uh, Andrew Cash's band and Charlie Angus's band is opening and uh, Screaming Sam. And then the second time, it's um, Youth, Youth, Youth and Young Lions yeah. opening. Right. So we know, you know, that's, you know, from the record peddler, we knew people were listening to hardcore, but people weren't forming hardcore bands right away at the beginning of the 80s. Right. Yeah. So the Dead Kennedys were significant yeah. in particular. Okay. And they only and, played here those two times, and that was it. And that second show is sort of like people talk about that Ramon show that happened in, you know, in England where everybody started a band. We kind of heard that from a lot of people that were at that second Dead Kennedy show where this went, wow, like, you know, seeing Young Lions, seeing Youth Youth Youth, seeing Dead Kennedys, it's like, I could start a band. And then kids went away and, and kind of did. You started seeing these themes. Uh, sorry to interject, but, the, I mean, I was thinking that the day after it had shown on TV... Oh, the Steve Gutenberg movie with the nuclear holocaust? Right, and people were legitimately scared, right? And th- there was also this feeling like there was no tomorrow, and we had to sort of try and make the world a better place a little bit. And so people got active, and you started seeing... So you were talking about the rock against nuke. There was the rock against racism. Uh, there was rock... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary against Reagan. So there's quite a few rock against types of things that started happening. And that was, 
I think that you're, that's when you're starting to see punk and uh, start to define itself, I guess, in a post-punk way as hardcore. So one of the punk things that comes out is hardcore, and there's a lot of other types of th- punk that start coming out, but hardcore was one of those things. And I think it was just, like I said, as a characterization, it was amped up every, everything, ideas, music, right. not, uh, you know, and, and, I just, and activism. I just want to touch upon something Sean said, though, about how uh, we were talking about the Ramones and the Dead Kennedys and how it might have been that th- Toronto bands were waiting for those bands to come to town before figuring out they could do it, uh, like that kind of sound maybe. Is that a Canadian trait? Is that something that we're just waiting? No. What do you no. think, Simon? Well, DOA was, I mean, no one starts cultural movements. No one starts a form of music. But uh, I'd say if there is, to the extent that there is a Canadian hardcore sound, DOA epitomizes it, and Youth 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 and Young Lions in Toronto are in the same mold. And it is a, a sort of a combination, perhaps, of the speed and heaviness of the American stuff and the maybe the melodic sense of the, of the British stuff. But uh, no, I mean... DOA was out there before anybody. You know, DOA and Black Flag and Dead Kennedys pretty much formed the blueprint for this stuff, and so I can't say that. Um, I don't know what it is about Toronto. I think um, one thing you'll hear from DOA um, is that they viewed, they, they came here, as, as Sean said, actually as the Skulls in 1977, lived here for a while, and uh, their sense was that in Toronto, in Toronto, everyone wanted to be New York. Everyone wanted to wear leather pants and have, you know, and these guys didn't care about that at all. They, you know, it's way more of a West Coast kind of slack, casual look, you know, play fast, who cares what your hair looks like kind of thing. I, you know, I guess I tend to fall halfway in between, but uh, I appreciate it. And they had been burned, like when they, they were trying to fit into the scene. They had moved here to try and make it uh, as the Skulls. And uh, they didn't fit in because of those, like, the, the types of dress that they had. They didn't have the same kind of thrift shops that we had out in B.C. The subhumans were talking to me about this. And they said, you know, we, did, we had bell bottoms and the kids here in, Can- in Toronto had, like, leather jackets or army surplus stuff. They had cool boots. We didn't have these kind of army surplus stores back in Vancouver. So we didn't have a way to dress or to fit in. And we went back home. Um, was Toronto, and, and I was also thinking that the Young Lions—they didn't—they didn't also—they also had a similar experience to that, where um, they were trying to play, they were trying to get gigs with the Violetones and uh, the other punk bands from that time, and they weren't getting any—they weren't getting any time with them. They were just like, "Oh, you guys are whatever the new wave. We're, we're, you're not part. Of, they didn't consider them part of the punk scene." And so I think that's when you start also seeing a defining, a music definition of a, a, the next subculture, right? And so it's a, that becomes the next generation where it's like they're rejected and they're like, they're not going to sit down and take that. They're playing, they're making music. They feel like they belong. They want to belong. Um, and I think that it was partially that rejection from the, the, their peers or the people that, were, that preceded them that sort of drove them and inspired them to create their own scene. I, I just wonder if... You mentioned Vancouver and the, the hippy dippy stuff and how it was slack. And I wonder if it's possible, I, I'm sweeping generalization here, but is Toronto a particularly angry city? Does, does Toronto have a particular chip on its shoulder that other cities don't have? I think of this from a sports fan perspective sometimes. We all saw it with the Raptors. I mean, 
half of the people were like, they're not going to win. Like even here, I mean, everyone was hoping they would win. There's a chip on Toronto's shoulder sometimes that I think contributes to some of the music and the culture that comes out of it. And I imagine these guys being like, they're all wearing tough leather jackets and jeans. Why? They, what are they so angry about? You know, like we're free-loving hippies from the West Coast. Is that true on any level? Do you think Toronto is particularly angry? Well, people don't like us. Like people in That's an angry Canada. thing to think. People in, yeah, so in Canada, people don't, you know, generally they pick on Toronto, right? And so, and I think there's also this animosity between Hamilton and Toronto. There was always that going on between the working class sort of steel town and Toronto being sort of whatever, like, you know. Huh. You're Toronto answering my a, question. Does anyone else want to speak to this, though? Like, does anyone disagree? No? Do you think it was angry or is angry? I don't think it's particularly so. I think that there's definitely, I mean, not to get off topic, but uh, you're talking about um, Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton's a city of a tenth the size of Toronto, if that, population-wise, and yet uh, all the best punk rock was from there. But there's no good hardcore from Hamilton. You know, it, it, and it was, there's a, a rock and roll tradition in Hamilton that is very real and very blue-collar and, ironically enough, very New York in a way that Toronto maybe wanted to be. But I think the Hamilton stuff was, even though it wasn't hardcore, was kind of grittier and, and tougher. And, and Toronto was viewed as kind of being posers and people playing dress-up and art school, you know? Um, I think Hamilton may be an angrier city than Toronto, but no one's ever heard of it, so it doesn't matter. Well, in terms of, uh, like, in terms of, uh, like... Fighting f- words. Anybody from <laughs> Hamilton here? Oh, my God. In Love terms- your city. She'll, she'll see Everybody outside. visit Granddad's Donuts, best donut place I've ever been to in my life in Hamilton. And, and let's, let's go back to trash and I would also say you took it a lot better. Than Guelph that. needs a good donut place, I'll tell you that much. But I was going to say but, that there is some good hardcore bands from Hamilton. Well, I was going to say, though, specifically about um, you know being angry or, or like violence within the scene, um, we interviewed um, a guy named Paul Abrash, um, who was the drummer of Steve's band, and amongst other things. Um, but uh, when we interviewed him, uh, he was from Windsor, and so he would see shows in Detroit. And oh, right. he was scared shitless of going to shows there because there were skinheads, and it was just out of control, right? People getting their heads kicked in. It was craziness. And when he came into Toronto in 87, it's, you know, it was like kids skipping around a you know, maple or whatever the, I don't know, whatever that phrase is. He was just like, wow, this is crazy. Like, you can go to a show and you don't get beat up? This is nuts. Um, and part of it, what we cover in the book, um, so... We have copies of the book here tonight, and um, we have a few of the first edition and also of the second edition. So if anybody's interested in buying one, we have both here tonight. But on the cover, the first one is Steve Goof. And when we were talking um, about why this scene um, didn't have a crazy skinhead scene like Detroit did, um, a lot of people said it was because of the Goofs. It was a, it was a self-policing scene, right? So the Goofs kind of had a war with the skinheads, and they sort of took care of the problem. So skinheads, if they came to a show, the goose would be there and they'd kind of march them out and deal with them, right? And because of that, and they, and like we said, they also ran one of the clubs, so skinheads could go to the club, but you just you had to behave yourself. And they weren't putting up with the Nazi shit, and they weren't putting up with picking on kids in the pit, and they weren't putting up with that shit. Right. And so they just, they stomped it out. And, um, you know, as much as the goose had, I guess, a downside, you know, they did also do damage to people in different ways. Um, they took care of a lot of that skinhead problem, and so that let a lot of us just kind of be ourselves, and you weren't as afraid to go to a show as you would be if you were in Detroit. Blue sniffing and heavy drugs as well. Yeah, and they were against some of those things, yeah. 
aggressively yeah, against, yeah, ag- aggressively yeah. against yeah, glue sniffing and, and that kind of stuff happening. So. And they start a, a punk run club, and they ran these booze cans that you could stay at. Because like, sometimes you couldn't get home at night, right, after the show. So they would basically be open for, like, for people to hang out, drink, and socialize and... Uh, there yeah, because last call was earlier back in those days, and and the, but, and the subway wasn't running. The subways weren't running, and like Simon was saying, like you know, there wasn't even Sunday shopping. It's like we were uh, a pretty conservative city from that point of view. So yeah, so booze cans was actually a pretty important part of the early part of the scene. Yeah, as uh, giving people a place to go after the show, and and bands would be playing at that there too. And sometimes the bands would be playing in a club, yeah, you got like a, a show. like a band like DOA or whoever or uh, Discharge, or whoever was in town, they'd be playing a show in a club, and then the show would be over relatively early. They'd end up at a booze can, and some of the same bands would be playing there right. after hours. Right. All right, well, I think uh, we've gotten some context for the time. I think we should maybe home in on this book and why it's come to be and how it's come to be and the shape of it, the zine-like quality of some pages and the the amount of information and the people. It's a really amazing and necessary undertaking. So first of all, thank you for this resource. Who I suppose we should begin with Sean and Derek, right, in some capacity in terms of, Derek, you were saying something about how this book came to be, I think, at some point? Um, well, Steve was kind of touching on the fact that um, there were blogs. Steve had a blog. I started a, a fan page or whatever you want to call it on Facebook for the, the band I was in, MSI. And so I would post flyers and things on there, and, um, and it would always start a conversation, Right, and so people would say, "Oh, I was at that show," and then the the thread would sort of morph into, "Oh, did you meet that person at this place or whatever?" And the story would kind of tell itself. And at the end of all these posts, someone would always say, "Why isn't there a book about all this?" And so those suckers who well, I I saw that a bunch of times happening. Right, there'd be these posts. Why isn't there a book? Why isn't there a book? I will say it's heartening that they went with book as opposed to an app. Or, yeah, that's true. You know, yeah, a, a documentary, whatever. Like, they went with book. I like that. Yeah, there was definitely the, why isn't there a book about this? And so after I saw this three or four times, uh, Sean was one of the suckers that posted that. And I you, knew Sean. You were like, why isn't there a book? Is that what you think? Yeah, yeah there's been so many great set. 70s books, and there was nothing on the 80s. And Seems to be collusion here that you ended up writing the book with him. Why isn't there a book? Well, ah, hey. So back in the day. Yeah. But um, I, also, I, I also think uh, yeah. that there was a number of books coming out about the first wave of the punk scene. So there was uh, Treat Me Like Dirt that Liz Worth had Liz written. Liz Worth wrote, yeah, amazing and, book. Don, yeah, Piles. Don Pyle. And Don Pyle's book, Trouble in the Camera Club. And there was a book. Of, um, Nick Smash, who's here. Yeah, I mean, Gone is coming out. Yeah. Well, I don't Nick think White's here. His book came out shortly before ours did on the early yeah. post-punk scene. And yeah. then the Perfect Youth, Sam Sutherland had written a book about the Canadian punk scenes. And you know, we were feeling kind of like, well, we were a part of an amazing scene, and there were so much other things happening with it. And and I mean, that's kind of why people were saying there should be a book about this because there were so many stories to tell. And I sort of. Um, Sean and I were acquaintances back then, um, so the band I was in, Sean did a record label and he put out a compilation, it was a benefit comp, and uh, our band was on that comp, so we had known each other from those days. What was the comp called? Uh, Progress. Progress. And it was a benefit for Tools for Peace. Uh, for Nicaragua, for yeah. Nicaragua, yeah. Okay, okay. And, and it was so all, sh- all Canadian, it was all Toronto bands, so it was a great Toronto compilation aside from that. So, Derek, did you and Sean meet because of Sean's Facebook response to your post, or you'd known him? Uh, well, we, 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 yeah, well. we were acquaintances, but we weren't, like, good friends. Yeah, okay. And so then um, I contacted him as a private message, and I just said, hey, what do you think about this idea? You did a zine before. I've done a fanzine. I work at a printing company. 
Seems like a thing, right? If somebody, and it, it, like the point of DIY stuff back then was don't wait around until someone else does it, do it yourself, right. right? And so from that ethos, we kind of talked about it and we said, like, let's just not wait, let's just do it. You and me, let's do it. And then friends of ours, like everybody you see on the panel here, they just kind of said, that's a good idea. I'd like to help with that. And even the way we funded this, like, we had options. To, um, like, we were talking to publishers early on. Sean said, maybe we should talk to a publisher and go that route uh, because it costs a lot of money to put things like this together. And so I said, okay, that sounds good. So Sean contacted one of them, and the, the, you know, the first conversation was, you know what you guys have to do? And as soon as they said that, I'm like, I don't have to do fuck all. I'm going to do this the way I want to do it. And that's how this is going to be done. It's going to be done the way we know is right. We were there, and we're going to talk to every person that we know that was there, and we're going to put this thing out, and it's going to look, and it's going to feel, and taste, and whatever, all the things that we wanted to create a feel with the book. And and I was talking to uh, Rob uh, earlier tonight, and he's going through the, this experience talking with a publisher, and they're doing their own book about flyers. Rob, Rob Bowman. Rob Bowman. Yeah. Hi, Rob. P.S. A little, a little announcement. His book is going to be amazing. So um, this book about, yeah. Yeah. And what? so can we talk about it? Well, we can, yeah, we can. I, I don't know enough to go into it. I just know that they're doing this book about flyers um, in Toronto, and it's over a period of like 100 and 18, something. 1840s to... 1840 to 2000. Wow. It's a, a wide range of all genres. I didn't know the Philadelphia Flyers were around that long. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's an amazing uh, project that they're embarking on, but uh, Rob is just saying, sharing that he's working with a publisher, and it's challenging to get things done the way you want. And so we avoided that altogether, and we thought, you know, how would we have put out a record or a zine or whatever back then? We would have talked to our friends and we'd say, hey, what do you want to help out? And can you write some stuff? And can you interview someone? And, and then we would have said, uh, you know, who's got 50 bucks? And we all would have thrown it in a hat. And then we would have pooled our money and we would have put something out. And then we'd say, how are we going to sell it? I don't know. I know someone. I'll send this copy to here and there and whatever. And so we just went the same route that we would have done back in the 80s. And we stayed true to that sort of ethos. And we all just basically pooled some savings and we put it in and hope that we could recoup our investment. It's back. a really fascinating aspect, psychological aspect of punk that I've always related to, this notion of a social cohort that is pushing back against something or someone, some oppositional force. And it's always that's always been the case with underground culture. And obviously it's manifested itself in the story you're telling. Like you had to do it yourself because did you even let them finish the sentence, well, by the way? Like, you know what you should do? And you're like, no. Yeah, pretty much. It was like, nope, meeting adjourned. Okay. What if it was just Rob. like, but, maybe you should tie your shoe. Your but, lace is loose. You might fall. It might have been helpful. But, you know what I mean? Like, fall, but you're saying, fall. like, we had to do it. We wanted to do it. We right. wanted to do it ourselves. We didn't, I didn't really want to go the route of the publisher, even if they had have been interested, because it's like, I just didn't want somebody to tamper with the story. We're in the midst now, sure. actually, just as a side note, we're in the midst of, um, doing a similar type of piece now about the Toronto metal underground metal scene of the 80s. Um, and we're going to do the exact same route. We've now, based on the success of this book, and people have seen that we can produce something that's you know, pretty well put together, um, there, are, there is more interest from publishers. Yeah. But we've also kind of, I mean, uh, you know, we've just been like, well... So who, who published this book? This is self-published. And it's called, what's your press uh, so called? So UXB Press, Unexploded right. Bomb is a song by Direct Action. Mm -hmm. And the title of the book, actually, just coincidentally, is from a Direct Action song, Tomorrow is Too Late. Right. Um, and I, I, fe I felt that they were one of the best bands to come out of that scene. And um, so we definitely picked the song title as a bit of a tribute to them. And then the, 
the name UXB Press. I just always like that unexploded bomb. It's kind of it's what I felt like we needed to do is ex- like explode this music out onto the world stage. Right? This stuff was really powerful, but it was a flop, and no one ever heard it. It's an unexploded bomb. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, Sean, you've been curiously quiet on the panel. It might be my fault. I don't mean to domineer. It's, it's all your fault. It probably is. I. Can you talk a little bit, just in general, because you haven't been talking? Uh, what is? Why did you want to do this book exactly? Like, what was it about this? This whole. Well, to me, it was the same thing. Like, you know, we'd seen all these great Toronto '70s punk books, but nobody had done the '80s, and it was something we knew. And you know, I thought, let's do this. We did this back in the day, and it made perfect sense. And we really wanted to make it feel like a fanzine did back yeah. in the day. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like a high, sort of like a, a yearbook, really of. Like, at the, in the beginning of the book, sorry to talk over you. No, yeah, no. That's what everyone's um, doing. That's sorry. The theme, I'm, I'm, the theme I'm, I'm, at least I'm recognizing panel. it. I'm apologizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, on the inside front cover, uh, we wrote a little bit about, um, you know, we kept hearing about a lot of people that hated their high school experience, and they, or some people didn't even make it to high school. And so we kind of wanted this to be, and it felt like at the time, sort of like a place you'd rather be than high school. You'd be, rather be with these people as friends than you would the people that you were going to school with. And so... We were thinking about it like, why don't we make it kind of like a yearbook, like a high school yearbook feel. And so a few pages in, there's like this two-page spread that has basically all those headshots. And that was like a supposed to be an artistic sort of take on like a school yearbook where you'd have all those you know rows and rows of straight headshots. Yeah. Um, yeah. The designers did that a little bit more uh, artistically than, than uh, the yearbook would do it. But that was meant to give it that sort of feel where you open it up uh, Simon's finding that spread. Do you want to hold it up for people? And people where, where you can go through there and you can yeah. be like, oh yeah, I remember That's Lurch. Right. I remember whoever, right? I'm sure and everyone listening to this podcast right now could see what Simon was holding up. That's great. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> no, awesome. no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It, you, this sparks a thought, and I don't know if you gave it much thought. This is obviously a deeply personal book for a lot of everyone on this panel who is involved. That distinction between personal nostalgia and actually doing a service to history, <laughs> did that come up at all for you? Like in this, like, what is, like, this is so meaningful to me and my friends. Uh, but what is the purpose of this book beyond that? Does that come up in conversation in any way? It, it did. I mean, I think we were going, is this inside baseball? Yes. Some of this detail. But, you know, even Derek's wife was reading the book and she was, you know, she wasn't part of the scene. She went, oh, this is actually quite readable. This is enjoyable. Yes, so we knew yes. that that people were, you know, that it could appeal to somebody. And same with me. Like, I've read enough books about other punk scenes that I wasn't part of or didn't know about. And, you know, I'm a music junkie, so I got pulled into the, the story. So the impulse to not... Um not alienate, but like it's weird when names are being dropped, or you're like, "Oh my God, it's like a torrent of information," yeah. because there were so many people involved. You've got to be careful in sort of explaining and contextualizing these things when you yeah. talk about them. Completely, right? yeah. And we and we took the store, store like the approach of an oral history, and the you know the classic book is "Please Kill Me," yeah, which yeah. is sort of sets the template out in a lot of oral histories. But we also you know, we'd seen books like Don Piles where there was lots of great photos, and nobody had married the two ever. We hadn't seen a book that had that oral history and had the visual history together. So I think we did something unique with that. Don's has some good stories in it, but it's not the same approach. Right. I mean, this is a, this seems, it doesn't seem academic in a dry way, yeah. but this seems to me like this is a history book for real. 
Like this, someone could teach a course with this book, if 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 I may. Is oh that... yeah, and we and we used literally ten percent of what we had. We had ten percent of what we, you had. We had fifty people give us their photo and flyer collections. So some of the photos up behind us are things that made it into the book, and some are things that didn't make it. And we had so much stuff, and we did a ton of interviews with Steve. We did a ton of interviews on our own, and we had like a million words. Yeah, there was um, over a million words transcribed. Um, which, Fran, did Fran do most of that? It was all Fran. It was all Fran. Um, Thanks, Fran. She's a fast typist. Um, and, and Tim we, Freeborn. And Tim, Tim Freeborn. Freeborn. Mostly yeah. yeah, mostly Tim. Uh, yeah. Mostly Tim Freeborn, actually. And um, yeah, so we used about a little over 100,000 words in the book, but there's over a million transcribed. And we had over 10,000 images, and I think there was only about eight or 900 that were used in the book. So if I were on Facebook now, and this was a post, I'd write, is there going to be another book? Why isn't there another book? There's been a bunch of people that have asked about that and said, why isn't there a second one? But, I mean, we could do five books, really, but um, we wanted to distill it. We didn't want to geek out to that degree of alienating people. We wanted to tell a good story. No, we no, wanted to have yeah. the, the prime visuals that we thought really reflected what the time was like. And, yeah, we could go on endlessly about, you know, here's another flyer, here's another ticket, here's another right. something. But at some point, yeah, the people that aren't, like, diehard about it are going to get kind of bored. But what we did do was um, we created a postcard set and, a, and a, a supplemental poster that came with the books that basically on one side of the poster, there's about 50 flyers that didn't make the book that was from the first half of the 80s, and the other side was about 50 from the second half. So we got to show about another 100 flyers that didn't make it into the book. Right. So we did use some of that extra material. There's been a couple of moments on the, on the panel tonight where a few of you have said, well, obviously some of you will remember this venue or this record store from 40 years ago, which tells me that you think that there's a demographic for this book that might be uh, the people that experienced it. Have you heard from younger people? Have you heard from people who are like, I had no idea, this is like an uncovered history? Oh, yeah, I've had, I've had 20-year-old kids come up to me at shows and say, thank you for doing this, they're in the hardcore scene now. But it's interesting, we had a firm called Goods and Services do all the design for us for free because they wanted to be able to lay something like this out to win awards, and they have. They've won two design awards, and you've won a print award for this. And they were all young designers, and some of them were kids that are in the scene today or you know, were just interested in music, and it was appealing to them as they were laying it out. Right. Yeah. Has it impacted the way... I mean, this might be impossible to say, but have they said... Have you noticed... This sort of cycle of activity coming back has it ever left? Has Toronto always had this we're, kind of activity? Going Steve on? can probably talk to this best because we're I, we're I, one of the the still the, one of the strongest cities for still hardcore. alive today. Right, kicking, yeah. for but sure. but in, I've been I we started this by me asking about kind of the material conditions of Toronto during this time. It seems harder than ever for artists for young people to have places to live in this city to be able to afford it to have venues that are available to them that aren't being turned into condos? Sure, yeah. Is that... Yeah, you, yeah, no, you're definitely seeing some of that. You're seeing the some of the clubs now spreading further west and uh, not really east, but well, yeah, some of them are east. Some of them, uh, there's like some DIY shows that take place in ravines, so there are field parties. Um, and uh, yeah, it's... But you're right. there, And you're seeing a lot of clubs closing down and it's more and more difficult. So like, you know, the when we... When the hardcore scene was going on, it was sort of just outside of the central business district, if I could say that. And now it's like really far west and really far other, in other direction. I guess it's more west and east. It's, um, and it's always sort of operated irrespective of. And you, like these... the, the record store, the recent record store, uh, Faith Void, that was open for a couple of years, 
they were trying to be a multifunctional space, so they were doing uh, punk film nights, and they were doing art ex- exhibitions, and they were doing all of these other kinds of things because there wasn't really a dedicated space and there was a need for it. And uh, they closed down because they couldn't afford the rent. Like, I mean, they just couldn't afford to pay it. And noise complaints. Rent. And noise complaints because so, they were doing shows there, yeah. I guess one of my the subtext of maybe the last line of questioning is, are there lessons for future generations of punk rockers in this book that you can think? <laughs> Simon says no. Simon shakes his head. No lessons? Well, Everything's just way too different now. I mean, the, the, the cultural conditions that led to this happening at the time are just we're just so removed from now that I don't think there's, there's anything to take from it. Um, there's, Although the Cold War is coming back. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, let's hope it stays cold. But, uh, is that a climate yeah. change joke? No, I don't joke about climate change. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean that in a fatalistic way. I just, I just don't. Uh, I just, I think kids nowadays, punks nowadays, need to grapple with very, very different set of circumstances. Um, and um, there's different punk scenes still, just as there was then. And um, so, depending on your approach, if your approach to punk is primarily a political approach, then you're not going to find much in here. Because you're you're dealing with a very different world and very different issues. Uh, if you're interested in music as primarily cultural or uh, artistic or just musical, then you are going to find stuff in here because so much of punk right now is about essentially this ongoing xeroxing of the glory years of '70s punk or early hardcore over and over and over again. Sure, I you know you will find out about bands you should listen to to copy, definitely. But I mean '70s punks. But that's important. That's what I. That's I I mean, that. I, I'll I'll take generic thrash over boring innovation any day. So I'm a fan of that. But uh, as I say, it entirely depends on your own perspective. I mean, I, I think there's different. I think there's different mediums though, and I think people are getting creative with the, these mediums. And and I think that DIY spirit is still alive and well. And you're seeing people t- uh, taking technology like uh, recording technology, and you're seeing bands like being able to just take ownership of that uh, their distribution. So I feel like. Uh, one of the lessons, certainly, the DIY spirit is still alive and well, and certainly in and it's in, in spades in the in the storyline here. And I think um, I, I think there's also the because I was thinking about the book and how the book came together. I mean, you were being a little bit modest by glossing over it, Derek. I, I think the the you know beg borrowing and stealing is how this thing got put together, and and that resourcefulness that just like not being told, I'm not going to be told how to do this book, and I know how this book is going to work. I think that is still part, that's still alive and well, and, and is told in this story, in this book. It's not just uh, the methodology, but it's also part of the storyline. But that sort of thing, I mean, like the DIY impulse, certainly that's never going to go away, but it's not like 1983 owns the DIY impulse. Well, I mean, this is just a part of the human condition. But the, the 70s scene had their way of doing things. The 80s scene had our way yep. of doing things. And in a way, like I would hope that the new generation has their own way of doing things. Exactly, so they can look at they can look at these examples for the seventies, eighties, whatever, nineties. But yeah, Simon's right. Like the the set of circumstances is totally different. Um, you know, to, to a big degree, we're cavemen up here, right? Like we don't we're not as attuned to the technologies and the and the things that are out there. So yeah, we would hope that maybe this these books inspire, but that. The kids now will come up with something that'll there's kick, no kick limits. the system's ass even more than we did. There's no know? limits having your music heard now. Yeah. I mean, so much of the if if you like the political economy of hardcore was about 
getting records made and getting them onto people's turntables around the world, getting them into stores. That doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it does if you want it, but it's not important. It's not important to 99% of kids. You can record something on your computer at home, and it's going to be zoomed into everyone's bedroom at the click of a button. But, but That's how those, you get heard. But So the mediums are changing, but, the, but some of the same things like networking and getting shows in other places, going to these scenes and doing these things. Uh, podcasting is one of those things that, uh, I mean, we're sort of... I mean, you do a podcast, Creative Control. Uh, we sort of try and podcast our radio show. But I'm listening to so Maximum Rock and Roll uh, just called, like, just finished doing their last publication. But their their radio show, uh, they do these remote radio broadcasts, and so they're s- sort of linking kids by uh, doing these exposures to. Uh, it's sort of like a these remote broadcasts are considered scene reports, like live radio scene reports, and those are fascinating to me. Like, I, like I feel like I'm still being inspired by what the kids are doing today. I just want to say, so that I don't come across as being too crabby, I mean, at, right at the end of this book, I, I, I try, it's punk, but uh, the, the very final part of the book was, was something, and I don't think there was any struggle with having this included, but uh, I suggested this because we've all read a million of these books where this music ends the moment the author loses interest, and the last couple of pages of this book are a paragraph about everything going on in Toronto right now, what you should be looking into, what you should be exploring, and pictures of some of the most vital current acts. So, uh, you know, I view punk as having a living history, and I think that um, there's certain impulses in it that will hopefully never go away and that can, on an artistic level, continue to inspire people. That's a whole different question as to what political issues people are grappling with or whether the specific modes of expression or um, modes of documenting and disseminating expression that were useful in 1977 or 1986 have a lot of meaning to kids nowadays because I don't think they do. But that's just because technology's changed. It doesn't mean that the validity of expression and music making has lessened at all. All right. Well, I appreciate that, Simon. Thank you for that. Um, but I, I just want to say one more thing about DIY. I figured you might. <laughs> of course. Sorry, I'm opinionated. No, no, it's fine. Go ahead. Um, but I was thinking that DIY was one of the characterizations of between punk and hardcore, and I think it really did start with that first wave of the punk scene. Uh, a lot of those bands were trying to get signed, so like the Violet Tones were trying to get a deal. The Diodes did get a deal, and then that sort of went a bit south. But people were looking at those lessons and going, yeah, maybe that's not the way to go, kind of like the way Derek dealt with a publisher. Uh, and so you started seeing these hardcore bands and they're like, yeah, we're not even going to try that. We're going to put out a cassette. We're going to do a different medium. So that's not a trick, like cassettes were, I mean, at the time they were kind of a medium that was, but they were sort of like a one step down from putting out vinyl, right? Mm-hmm. And the punk bands were, the hardcore bands were like, yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to take ownership of our means of production and, and do this stuff ourselves. And, I, I, I mean, I don't want to underestimate it, but I feel like it's a it's a defining character of between punk and hardcore, and it comes from the punk scene. It's something that uh, the hardcore kids looked at the punk scene and said, "Yeah, this is this is how we're going to do things now." Okay. And my, my usual line is that uh, the first wave of punk was art school, and then hardcore was high school. Right. <laughs> that's probably that's probably accurate. I just want to uh, suggest that if anyone has any questions in the audience. Um, we can take them. We can we can uh, we can have the panel field your questions. So think about that for a moment. Uh, I mean, does anyone have any right now? Can anyone think of any questions they have? I have a question. Sure. 
Hi, guys. Uh, actually, me and my friend here, uh, we're from Ecuador, and we've always been seeing, like, New York, of course, and the UK has been, for us, an influence in the punk, uh, the punk scene back home. But we want to know what happened. Why, why did you always say that, like, the, the Canadian or the Toronto scene never got the recognition they deserve? I mean, what happened? Where was, where did that link to the world Get cut. It's a mix of things. One of them is in that early wave, we only put out cassettes. It wasn't until the mid-80s that we start putting out vinyl. So record collectors aren't interested in cassettes. They deteriorate. And we had so many bands coming here that bands could play here in the sort of insulated world and not have to tour. Most bands maybe went to Ottawa or Montreal. Very few of them traveled across the, the country. And this is the same for rock bands. It's Canada's impossible to tour it's impossible to distribute records here. So we didn't tour. You know, we had all these great bands come here and we just stayed in our own town. Yeah, like Sean was saying, there were there were shows that at Doug's Club, for instance, you could have a local bill of two or three local bands and you'd have 300 kids showing up. And so there wasn't really much incentive. I can speak from a band point of view. There wasn't, really, yeah, there wasn't really much incentive. We would go to the States and we would go with um, some friends' bands like Sons of Ishmael. MSI and Sons of Ishmael hop into a van. We'd go down to the States for the weekend or whatever, or three, four days or whatever, and we'd go and try and play shows. And there'd be, you know, 12 people would show up. And you wouldn't have money to, for gas to get home. And you're eating peanut butter sandwiches. And, you know what I mean? Or you can stay home and play to all your friends and there's hundreds of people showing up and not that we got paid or anything, but also you didn't have to put out the money or it was, I don't know, I don't want to say it was lazy, but you know what I mean? Like it was, it was much easier to, that was more appealing at the time and most of us didn't drive and have a van, so that was another hurdle. So there's all these kind of things and you're just like, well, I could take a subway down to Doug's Club and play to 300 people or I could figure out a way to get a van and go to Kentucky, which we actually did. Played in Newport, Kentucky, at the Jockey Club, to you know thirty people or whatever, twenty people. Right. And our drummer had Tim had to uh, rent the drums from uh, didn't you? Didn't you rent the drums from the uh, the opening band, Active Ingredients? He was just really uptight about letting us use it. Oh yeah. So, anyways, we didn't have a warm reception from the locals, and this is kind of a weird thing. And then our second show on that tour, just as a side note, we were supposed to play in um, Ohio in Kent. Was it Kent? Yeah, and we were supposed to play at a club called JB's, and we got there, and nobody had told us the club was closed. And so we're like, okay, so our second show of our tour, of our two-show two tour, is also a bust. Um, but on that time, it was actually pretty cool. We ended up meeting some people in Kent that we stayed in touch with for a long time. They had a, um, a house that was going to be demolished coming up at... A, the Happy Hippie House that was going to be demolished um, a few days or a week or something later. So they said, well, why don't you just have the show at our house? And so we're like, all right, what could go wrong? So we piled a bunch of bands in this house and we played in the living room and there were kids like jumping up and down. We thought the whole place was going to implode. There's kids going up the stairs. The banister got ripped off. It was something you would see in a movie. At one of the amps blew up and it was like smoke and it was craziness. It was like something you'd see in a movie. So you know, in hindsight, we look at these things and we said, eh, it, was, it would have been a drag to do a lot of that, but in hindsight, we kind of look at it and go, it would have been fun to do some of that. And so, yeah, a lot of the bands didn't do that. They stayed home, they played here, and that's probably why the, the message didn't spread too far outside of the borders of the province. I think there's also the fact that, uh, I mean, DOA could just drive down the border, drive down the coast and play San Francisco and Seattle and Portland and L.A. and San Diego, you know, 
we didn't have anything so close. But, uh, but on the other hand, there's no great Toronto band. There is no great definitive Toronto band. So you have other big American cities like Chicago and Philadelphia. There's no great band. So you don't have like a Husker Du in Philadelphia or a minor threat in Bad Brains in D.C. or whatever. Like if, if a city has a great group that has meaning to people and creates a body of work, yeah. stuff will follow. And Toronto had a lot of good bands. It never had a great band. And so it never really congealed. I mean, I'm not even a fan of them, but the middle of Canada, you have Edmonton and you have SNFU who just went out, played and played and played and were great live and became a huge band because people loved them and they overcame worse conditions than we had for touring. If, if you've got a band that connects with people and means stuff like that, it'll happen. I just don't right. think it was going to happen in Toronto. Okay. So th I also think that there was... Um, uh, like the scenes that we talk about, like London and New York, London had a record publishing industry or a record industry. New York had a publishing industry. We were kind of a branch plan economy, so we were we were like the labels that were here were put were reissuing records from those scenes and from other places that were kind of going to be hits, but they weren't. They were less interested in doing putting out our bands and. Uh, and we, ne we never had that record label. Like, we never had an SST in California or a Discord in D.C. We didn't have... We had fringe records, and they were mostly putting out... But that happened later, yeah. and, but it was NRK cassettes, so it was like Brian Taylor had a, a record label, or a cassette label, but, like, who was buying cassettes, really? And, yeah. I mean, it was just based on, like, d that tape trading that we were doing that, uh, that Derek had alluded to earlier. I mean, we were trying to write to as many people to find out about their bands as well. Uh, and then to and to showcase the bands that we were loving here, right? Cool. Thank you for that question, all the way from Ecuador. That's great. All the way from Ecuador. <laughs> Thank you. Just to just a little because we're very curious about Canada right now and going into some. Are you that, spies? Yes, we are actually. <laughs> but don't tell anyone, please. They're going to deport us really quick. Um, so there's something interesting that I find about uh, Toronto because. Along with the punk scene, you also have the CN Tower coming up. And it's kind of late for a city to get there. Like the, the, like the, the states, uh, New York has the, the Statue of Liberty, but it's like in 1900s. You guys got it in the 70s. <laughs> it's kind of really late to have that, that, how do you say that monument, you know? Uh, that, that, does that have something to do with the identity as well of, of the music kind of like finding itself because it still doesn't have a form because it, it the city leading, is kind of finding itself as well? So I'm a, I was also an urban studies major and the tallest buildings used to be you could never build over top of churches. So at the time, the church was sort of the reigning ideology. Then bank towers became the reigning ideology and the CN Tower was a communication tower which signified sort of the media being the reigning ideology. And so in some ways we were the leading edge, but everyone also looks at it as a ridiculous phallic symbol, right? Um, so I, anyway, I just, uh, I, I don't know if it had anything to do with buildings in the city or anything like that, but I, I do feel like, um, I, I just, I feel like Canada wasn't, I think there was, a, in terms of, I'm going to go back to this market analysis, is that I just don't think, the like, these labels didn't think that there was a market here to put out this stuff, and they just ignored it. Like they just were like, "Yeah, well, we'll take your meeting. Uh, we'll pretend like we're interested, uh, and some maybe you'll get a recording, but we'll shelve it." I mean, that happened to the Second Diodes record. They just shelved it, and then later on, it came out. There was, you know, the people who got involved in the record industry had bad experiences, and and the hardcore scene was just like, "We're not, 
I'm not going there. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, yes, you, sir? Yeah, just quickly. Um, what I find really striking is the flyers, um, in particular the artwork. Um, just some like uh, really compelling visuals. Uh, I was wondering if uh, any of you could speak on who the designers were of those flyers. Was it one particular person? Was it several people? And, and what that process was like? Yeah, there was, a, there was a number of people, and we have a section on some of the artists in the book. So Ken Brown was one of the guys. Um, Alistair, who was in No Mind, he did some of the amazing flyers that are behind us, those Kafka-esque flyers with the bugs. That was that Reed English, who was in Sudden Impact, did some amazing flyers. So we had pretty good flyer art. Most of the flyers were pretty bad, but we didn't include those. So That's yeah. Reed's artwork there? Yeah, that's Reed there. My first show. Yeah. That's right, your first show. Amazing. Yeah. So we did. We had some amazing artists in the city. Uh, There's a lot of different artists. Uh, they all had different styles. Some of them drew, some of them. And then there was a lot of people who couldn't draw that would just do collage artwork. Uh, you would try and get an interest. Sometimes you would take an interesting graphic and try and make that the thing. You would use band logos, anything to try and get your attention. Uh, you were also putting them up on street street uh, street poles, like the street corner poles, and you're trying to get people's attention as they're walking by, right, to try to make it memorable, as memorable as possible so that people would take a chance and go to that show. So, I mean, uh, I don't know. There was different, there's, I think there was different ways of doing, approaching flyers, too. Some of them, like, were just cut and paste and stuff like that, but there was definitely some artists that people tried to get to do their flyers, they, and they were so talented. Some of them went on to become tattoo artists and different things like that. I think the best way to experience them, I think, would be to pick up a copy of this book. Yes, yes. If I might P.T. Barnum this at the end. No, I think it's true. I, I, it's a remarkable achievement and, and compendium. I mean, I, I, I'm astounded by it. I, um, I want to thank all of you for coming out to this uh, tonight. I'd like to thank all of our panelists. And before we go, if you'd like to, please say one last thing about uh, this book, or, or if you just want to plug uh, something you're selling, uh, I'd love to hear one final word from each of you. Um, why don't we start at the end? Uh, we are working on a radio series uh, called Tomorrow is Too Late based on the interviews. Uh, some of these interviews were six, eight hours in length, so it's taking a while to do the editing. Uh, we've aired the MSI interview and one other one, Chronic Submission. Mission. Yeah. Um, and I think we're working on the MicroEdge one next because they just released a record. So Where will uh, these live? These live on our equalizingxdistort.com blog. Okay. And, um, uh, sorry, equalizingxdistort.blogspot.com. Maybe that's it. Um, just search equalizingxdistort. It should come up. Uh, and that's pretty much, yeah, that's it. Thank you, Stephen. Fran, plug the records. Speaking plug the of records. Fran, I hope you've... Did you feel like you had enough to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. no, it's fine. I feel badly. No, no, don't feel bad. Um, so working on this book has uh, inspired me to start uh, a record label. Um, working on this book? You're starting yeah. a record label? and Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I uh, so last year we, uh, we started, Simon and I started a record label uh, called Urban Grandier. And uh, we put out our first uh, two releases uh, in June. Um, Malhavik, uh, their first demo. Right. That was only available on right. cassette. Right. Um, and uh, Slaughter, a uh, reissue of their 7-inch. Um, so, yeah, so this book inspired me to do something um, myself, like self-funded, uh, self uh, 
like working with local artists, um, working with a flyer artist from the metal scene, uh, Harry Tong, uh, who did a lot of the sacrifice flyers and cool. he did the uh, artwork for the Slaughter record. Um, so, so yeah, so that's that's awesome. That's my. Where can words. people go to learn more about the label? Uh, is there somewhere uh, on the internet? There's an Instagram account called Urbane Grandier Records. Um, and uh, the records are available on uh, urbangrandier.bigcartel.com. Okay. Thank you, Fran. Yeah. I appreciate Thanks. that. Derek? Okay, so as I mentioned, part of the ideology of doing the book was to spread the word of the, some of the bands that came from here. We thought that they were pretty great, and we put out a 7-inch that came with the book. Uh, but the proceeds that came from um, the sale of the books, the, the little bit of profit that we made, we put that back in. It was important to us that we wanted to roll that into another project. So we, um, with Simon's help, Simon does a label called Ugly Pop, um, we partnered to put out the uh, Micro Edge demo. So that was one of the bands that you've been seeing up on the screen. Um, they were Toronto, one of Toronto's first um, you know, skateboard kind of bands, right? And uh, so we used the, um, the money that we made back from the books to put out their album. And so they recorded a demo in 83, a series of demos. And... Um, they went pretty largely unheard for all these decades. Right. And so we ended up compiling that and putting it out. Cool. Um, so that was something that was a, a byproduct of this. And then once we get the money back from those records, we're going to look to another project and hopefully put something else out. Um, I've also been working with Schizophrenic Records, who did a um, uh, Toronto hardcore series uh, where they put out an MSI record. They put out Sons of Ishmael. Young Lions, and now they've just done Chronic Submission and Direct Action. So they've kind of reactivated that series from a couple of years ago, and um, that part of that was motivated by the book. Um, so there's a few things that have come out of that, uh, but I guess the, the thing I would like to say to sum up is thank you to everybody that helped out with this, because every, everybody was so generous with their time, with their, um, you know, their, their, their collections, collections and their stories and everything. It was amazing. And a lot of people we didn't know before this, and they just became instant friends. It's sort of like this, if, you, if you've got that hardcore passport, it's, you know, you're, you're from the same place and you know the same, yeah. uh, same feeling, and it's immediate connection. And so thanks to everybody that took part and helped us to get this thing out. Thank you, Derek. That's, that's well said. Uh, Sean? I'm, I'm going to plug our Facebook pages, and really, I don't think this book could have happened. Not a good with, company, Facebook. No, no, and that's the thing. I, you know, for, you know, I would, would have got off Facebook if it wasn't for these books, yeah, because yeah. really, it was how we outreached to people and how we, you know, we had people who were complete strangers hand over their photo collections to us and just say, here, take this. That's amazing. And it was mostly through, you know, they had some connection to the scene, and some of them were, were people who were there before us. So we have the T.O. Hardcore 80s page, and we have a T.O. Metal 80s page for the new book. New and book, yeah. Really, those pages have been how we did this, and, you know, we got contributions and were able to find people through that page. So what's please the check face- them out. What's the Facebook page called? So if you go to facebook.com slash T.O. Hardcore 80s and slash T.O. Metal 80s, Okay. You will get to them. Okay. And where can, can people figure out how to order the book? Uh, if you go there, we have a list of what stores in Toronto have it, but we also have uh, a big cartel store as well that is um, UXB Press and UXB Press Canada. Okay. Uh, dot bigcartel.com. Okay. Thank you very much, John. Simon, last words. By the way, it seems like you're wrong. Everyone was very inspired by your book. This book. <laughs> uh, this sure. book. Sorry. Well, yeah. I just want to say my role in this was it's primarily an oral history. Mm-hmm. But I did some the the other writing that isn't like the, the text the editorial that is not, writing. Yes. Kind of, yeah. and as such, I was very I was very pleased that you said a minute ago that you thought you could teach a 
a class with this book. Um, I write a lot about music, and this has been the best thing that I've been involved with. Hmm. And um, I think that this stuff doesn't get taken seriously enough. I mean, <laughs> a lot of it is silly and extreme and everything, but at the same time, it changed a lot of our lives. Absolutely. It, it continues to do so. It's an important part of the culture, and uh, it deserves better treatment than, than um, fleeting blog posts or, you know, everything in media now is so dispensable and ephemeral and passing, and having the opportunity to uh, print something like this with the quality that... Uh, it was given by the people who printed it the, the, and the design people. It's very meaningful to me. And uh, I just want to thank everyone who bought it and uh, enabled serious punk history to keep going and to prosper and for this stuff to get the recognition uh, belatedly that I think it deserves. Again, well said. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for that. Um, my name is Vish. This has been a Creative Control podcast taping. So if you'd like, please check out my uh, podcast. It's called Creative Control. I said it twice just to double plug it. I once again, thank you so much to all the organizers here tonight and to all of you for coming out. And how about uh, another warm ovation for this panel? Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.